All right, so today's reading is from Matthew 23, verse 15, I hope, uh, which is on page 878 of the Red Bibles. So it says, um, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to make one convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as fit for hell as you are. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Welcome to church on that note. Michael gets the tough one. Well, I'm, uh, my name is Brandon. I serve as lead pastor at Midtown. So glad that you're with us this morning. I'm really thankful. just want to say uh, to Adam and James and others, uh, Dante, Nate, uh, maybe missing somebody who preached for me the last five out of the last six weeks. I was able to be here or be with my family on vacation. So thank you guys for uh, doing such a great job. But it's so good to be back. We are going to be uh, starting a new series today. Uh, it's a spiritual formation series, and if you're new to our church, uh, we do these a couple of times a year, um, and we take some time just to uh, set aside uh, intentional space to press into our vision, to help you become, to help us become uh, a community that's practicing the way of Jesus for the life of the world. And so we take a practice from the ancient church, from scripture, and we kind of uh, zero in on it for about four to six weeks. We have practice guides and a number of other things to help you engage with this practice. And so we'll talk more about that uh, at the end today. But as we, uh, as we get into the series and as we begin to think about uh, what it looks like to be a people who are embodying and, pr- and preaching the good news of Jesus, I know that there may be all kinds of different emotions, even as you hear this text, different things that are stirred up in you, uh, maybe from your past experiences or just kind of how you view religion and church. And so we want to kind of acknowledge and name that. And I just want to invite us as we do every week into a moment of silence. So we want to take some time to be reminded that God is a good father and he longs to speak to us as his children and to invite us into life in his kingdom. And so that's what we're actually going to talk about today. So let's just take a moment to put our stuff down. Let's take a deep breath in and a deep breath out. And let's just ask God to speak to us, even if you're here and you're not a disciple of Jesus. We believe that God is speaking. His spirit is working here. And so Would you just be open and curious to what God might want to say to you today through Scripture? So let's take a moment to be silent, to pray, and then I'll pray for us, and we'll get started. God, our Father, as we take a moment to be still and silent before you, we want to just kind of center ourselves, our thoughts, our feelings, our memories, our imagination, our trust structures. We just want to center ourselves in your love, your loving presence and power. Thank you for being a good father who longs to uh, bring us into life in your kingdom. And I pray that we would receive with open hearts and minds what you have to teach us today. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his life, his death, his resurrection, his teachings. We thank you that in Jesus is truly life, life abundant. So God, would you remove the obstacles and the sin and the brokenness and the confusion and the chaos that would cloud our vision, cloud our ability to just hear from you and to follow you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you saw the headlines a couple of weeks ago, but um, Pope Francis recently was in Canada, and he apologized for the Catholic Church's role in setting up Canada's residential school system, uh, which perpetuated decades of abuse against First Nations children in Canada. Um, He was in Alberta, which was the site of one of the residential schools that they operated for about 100 years. And in his apology, he acknowledged what he called, quote, the physical and verbal and psychological and spiritual abuse that children suffered at these residential schools. His visit there came on the heels of several weeks before the discovery of the remains of 215 indigenous children, some as young as three years old, who were found in British Columbia. These children were among the estimated 150,000 First Nation children 
who were separated from their families and forced to attend these residential schools. Uh, Canada had, with a, similar to South Africa, what they called a Truth and Reconciliation Commission where they investigated this and they reported out on it. And uh, basically what they found was from their inception about the mid-1800s to their final closure in the late 1990s, these 139 schools were, quote, created for the purpose of separating Aboriginal children from their families in order to minimize and weaken family ties and cultural linkages and to indoctrinate children into a new culture, the culture of the legally dominant Euro-Christian Canadian society. This report gave testimony and bore witness to myriad forms of abuse, torture, trauma that were endured by these children. And to date, they've identified the names of about 4,100 children that died. Now, I say that because as we talk about what it means to be and to preach good news, we have to wrestle with these kinds of legacies. We can't ignore these legacies, right? I was out west recently with my children, and we were visiting Mount Rushmore, and we're visiting native lands that were stolen, right? And we have to kind of wrestle with this, like the good news of Jesus has not always been good news, as it's been actually lived out by his followers. I experienced this firsthand in my own journey. When I was a kid, I didn't grow up in church, and when I was a teenager, uh, I um, visited a church with my friend, and uh, they were a very evangelistic church, right? They really believed in aggressively sharing. So I grew up in Louisville, aggressively sharing uh, the good news of Jesus to the point where when you visited one of these churches, uh, the pastor would personally come to your home that night. So imagine like you're here, you're a visitor, and then knock, knock, knock on your house tonight, your apartment door, hey, I'm Brandon, and say something, they would go something like this. Uh, hey, my name is Pastor So-and-so, saw you visit the church this morning. I just want to ask you a question. This is like literally the hard start, the cold start. If you died tonight, where would you go? And I'm like, whoa, hang on. You know, am I going to die right now? Like, what are, you, what, are, what are you doing here? You know, it's just an awkward startup for a relationship. But he proceeded to share what you might call the, the four spiritual laws. If you grew up in Campus Crusade for Christ, you're familiar with that. And, and our family actually trusted Jesus. Now, a couple of months later, um, this same man, as well as our music minister, came before the church and confessed that they were in adulter- adulterous relationships with somebody else in the church. They were cheating on their wives. And so you have this dissonance for me as a, as a er- I mean, again, this is like five months into my journey as being a Christian, like you're telling me this and you're preaching this good news and yet you're living in a way completely against that. Uh, I went on to attend this school. My mom taught at this Christian school. And uh, as well there, like our, our principal uh, was eventually uh, sent to prison for uh, sex crimes. And so my early experiences with Christianity were just a lot of hypocrisy. And, and as I was not probably even able to process at that time, but in retrospect, looking back, like I think a lot of my struggles early on were like, how do you expect me to believe in this good news that you're not actually living out? You want me to be an evangelist for this religious system. And, and when I saw the damage, like literally, I mean... There, there was not, this was not isolated. This was a culture of abuse. This was a culture of exploiting power against the vulnerable. I mean, I, I, to the point where, I mean, I could tell you, I could regale you with stories, but my, one of my closest friends to this day, um, this guy that I've known since we were uh, very little children, his sister was victimized in our church, and he, and he left the church. And uh, to this day, wrestles. I mean, literally, like we were just together at a Reds game not long ago, and he's in tears, just processing all that that meant is he's now a father, an adoptive father, and wrestling through, like, why? Like, explain this to me. You're a pastor, right? I don't go to church. Explain this to me. How do you reconcile these things? And we're talking about the good news of Jesus, and yet acknowledging it's not always good news. Now, I say all that to say this, this is what we step into. As These are the tensions as we talk about this that we can't just gloss over. And um, I'm reminded of the words of the great atheist, uh, is that that an oxymoron? Uh, Frederick Nietzsche, well-known atheist, Frederick Nietzsche, said, I might believe in the Redeemer if his followers look more like the redeemed. Now, here's the the interesting. There was a study done recently, Barna, which is a big research firm. uh, They did a study recently among uh, among Americans and Christians. And uh, 90% of Christians had this to say. They said that being converted to Jesus was the best thing that ever happened to them. Better than anything else in life is being converted to Jesus. Same study, more than 50% of millennials say that trying to convert someone to Jesus is oppressive and dangerous and a threat to the social fabric of society. 
So we have a problem, right? Like on the one hand, everybody who's in with Jesus says, this is the best thing that's ever happened to me. And yet Jesus' own followers, some of them are saying to share the gospel, to try to convert people. And certainly outside of the church, people are saying to try to convert people is cruel, it's dangerous, it's subversive to the social fabric of society. So which is it? And how do we navigate these tensions? This is, this is some of what it's like to try to have this conversation. Like in my heart and mind, pastorally, the last couple weeks as I'm preparing, I'm feeling all this. I'm remembering things from my own childhood. And, and, and like, <laughs> I was terrible at evangelism, so when I came into this system, there's like a method and they teach you and, you know, all this stuff, and you're supposed to go knocking on, I was awful. I was not good. I was not good at arguing with people. I was not, I did not feel comfortable. Like, we had these tracks where, like, you, we, I was trained to, like, go to the mall, and it looked like a wallet with money sticking out of it, and you would drop it, and you would wait for somebody to come by, and they'd pick up the wallet thinking it was money. If you didn't grow up with that, praise God for you, okay? But I was not, just all that to say, I was an utter failure as an evangelist in that system. So this may be my baggage, but I have felt paralyzed at times. And I know for many of us, we feel triggered by the wounds that we experience in the church, the way that evangelism has been done in the church. And if you feel that way, I just want to name that reality and say you're not alone. Not only from me, but I want you to hear it from Jesus, right? Like some of Jesus's harshest words, literally people read Matthew 23, this passage is set in a larger context of Matthew 23, aimed at the religious leaders, but really a word for the church uh, today. And they, they hear this and they're like, this can't be Jesus. This is not the Jesus that's all sentimental and kind. Like this, these are harsh words. His harshest words, some of his harshest words in the New Testament were aimed at the religious leadership of his day towards their practice of evangelism. And so I want us to hear this. And I want to just give us some context. And I don't want to just be negative, right? Like, I know you're like, why are we starting with the negative? Let's be positive. No, we need to deal with this stuff if we're going to get to the positive because so many of us have, have grown up in this and are maybe even fearful about sharing the good news because we don't want to be identified with all the crazy, right? And so we have to kind of see that like Jesus gets it and Jesus was trying to do the same thing, trying to reform evangelism in his own day. And so I just want to give you some context here on Matthew 23, um, and, and I'll call this uh, toxic evangelism, right? So Jesus is critiquing toxic evangelism. Evangelism, it was not leading to life in the kingdom of God. And he aims his, his, uh, his woes at the religious leaders and namely the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees get a bad rap, okay? Like, can we just give the Pharisees a little bit of grace, okay? We don't, we, like, historically, there were four sects, S-E-C-T-S, of Judaism in Jesus' day. There were the Sadducees, right? They were the cultural elites. They were the priestly class, but they were compromised. They went after power and they colluded with the Romans. Then you had the Zealots on the other end of the spectrum who hated the Romans, and they were the violent, like, uh, you know, revolutionaries of their day. Then you had the Essenes. The Essenes were separatists. They saw all that was happening politically and, you know, with these other groups, and they said, you know what, we're out. We're going to check out this is like the Benedict option. We're going to move to a farm somewhere in the middle of Wyoming or a ranch, and we're just going to kind of do our own thing. They withdrew to the wilderness and created an ascetic kind of monastic counterculture. So that's the three. And then you have the Pharisees, which were one of the larger of the, of the three groups. Now, again, the Pharisees, you have to keep in mind the context historically. The Romans have just come in and destroyed the Jewish people, right? They have destroyed their culture. They, they are attempting to eradicate Jewish religion and Jewish culture. They're Hellenizing, right? They're spreading Greco-Roman ideas. And so the Pharisees are like, nah, you're not, you're not going to come in here and, and erase us, right? So they essentially are a renewal movement seeking to preserve Jewish cultural identity. And that's important. Cultural, not spiritual identity, but cultural identity in the face of this Greco-Roman propaganda and compromise. There were thousands of Pharisees through, throughout Palestine, um, and, and here's the thing, theologically, this is what they don't get credit for, theologically, they were actually the most aligned with Jesus of any of the movements. If Jesus was going to start a movement with any of these groups, it would have been the Pharisees, right? They took the Torah seriously. They believed in the covenant relationship with Yahweh and the, and the, and, and the God of Israel. They believed in a coming Messiah. They were zealous for the purity of Israel and the political restoration of Israel. They believed in the kingdom. And, and the, their basic outlook was Roman occupation of Palestine was a result and a punishment, 
You, you ever see those like TV evangelists or like anything, you know, it's like COVID happens and they're like, God's judging America. They, that's, that's essentially, they look at what's happening and they're like, this is a punishment for our lack of obedience to the Torah. So their agenda was to be a renewal movement, pushing holiness, right? And their idea of holiness was to take the stipulations and the principles and the laws of the Torah that were usually reserved for the priestly class and to apply them to everyday ordinary people. That was kind of their bag, right? And so the food laws, the dietary laws, the circumcision laws, they, they were not, they, again, this is a confusion about the Pharisees. A lot of people look at it as like a legalistic ladder, like a works righteousness where they were trying to earn God's favor. That's not exactly right, okay? They, these, these laws and all the oral interpretations of the Pharisees were actually more concerned with boundary markers, right? It's who's in and who's out. And it was all about preserving Jewish cultural identity and the restoration of the political kingdom, that's what the laws were about. It wasn't about necessarily just works righteousness. So with that background, Jesus looks at this group in front of all the crowds, very popular, right? They were like a populist movement, and he says, woe to you. Woe to you. It's interesting. He begins his ministry with blessed are you, right, on the Sermon on the Mount, and he ends with woe to you. And Luke actually has them side by side, blessings and woes. The same God who brings blessing also brings warning. These woes are intense, right? Like there's seven woes, and and there's this pattern of blessing and cursing. It's not like, don't think of cursing like you're an irredeemable Hitler-like evil person, right? Blessings and curses uh, in the Old Testament, if you read the book of Deuteronomy, like the Pharisees understood covenant blessing. They were trying to be the inheritors, actually, of covenant blessing. But Jesus is essentially using their own language and flipping them into the role of those who are not the blessed ones who are bringing salvation to the world, but those who are actually in need of salvation and healing themselves. And so the woe becomes, these woes become prophetic warnings or a type of mourning of a religious system that is dying. And so Jesus says, woe to you. And he specifically here in verse 15 addresses them in the context of their proselytism. He says, woe to you. You travel across land and sea. You, you, you're very zealous to make proselytes. And they, and they were, right? There were two kind of proselytes uh, for the Pharisees. There was what's called a proselyte of the gate. This was essentially a, a half proselyte, somebody who was a Gentile pagan who was attracted to Yahweh and to the teachings of Yahweh. Uh, into the law, but, and, and they may have attended synagogue, but they were like, hey, uh, I'm not getting circumcised. So, you know, I'm not doing the food stuff, right? Like, I'm a Gentile. I like my pork. You know, I'm not, I'm not coming all in. Um, and so they, they didn't come in. They were the, kind of the half proselytes. And they were viewed pretty negatively by the rabbis. Then you had the proselytes of righteousness. These were the zealous ones. These were the devout ones. These are the ones that said, you know what? I don't want half of this. I want to come all the way in. I'm going to bind myself to the doctrines and the precepts of uh, the Jewish leaders to the oral traditions. We're going to be circumcised. We're going to be in full communion with the synagogue. They were all in. And that is, that, that is what the Pharisees were trying to do in their proselytism. It was a zeal to convert them to a religious system. Now, the question is, what was wrong with their evangelism, right? What was it that they were doing wrong? What was it that Jesus is critiquing? Why does he say, woe to them? I want to give you three just quick little descriptors that I think characterize the Pharisees' evangelism. The first thing is that they had a distorted gospel. They had a distorted gospel. The second thing, they had a deformed practice or a deformed discipleship. And then thirdly, it created a destructive culture of hell when it came to evangelism. Those are Jesus' words. A distorted gospel, a deformed practice or discipleship, and a destructive culture. So let's look at each one of those in turn. Distorted gospel, distorted message. The Pharisees had part of the story of God's kingdom right, right? That God had promised a Messiah who would one day come and restore Israel as a light to the nations. But I say distorted because 90% is also 10% wrong. And it's actually the most dangerous sometimes because it's subtle and it's hidden underneath platitudes and it's hidden underneath doctrinal statements. But they had a distorted vision for when that Messiah would come and the character of that Messiah, how this salvation would come. They saw the coming kingdom in nationalistic terms as a social and a political revolution 
where the Messiah was going to come in with a militaristic power and violently destroy all of God's enemies, right? And so the religious system essentially centered these traditions of the priests that they were wanting to apply to normal people um, over a covenant relationship with God. It elevated secondary human traditions and said, this is all part of the package of being a good patriotic Jew. And so tribal identity and human traditions become this really nasty combo. And again, this is good news if you're a faithful Torah-keeping all-in Jew, but it's bad news if you're an impure Gentile. It's bad news if you're a compromised Jew. It's bad news certainly if you're a Roman, right? Because we have no category for forgiving our oppressors, right? We are, we are down to destroy our oppressors. And so what, essentially what happens, they just lost sight of the core reality of what it meant to be in covenant relationship with Yahweh. They lost sight of the fact that the law was given. I mean, the Torah was good, right? Jesus says it's good, it's good. But it was given in the context of a relationship, right? Exodus, God liberates his people. Before he gives them the law, he says, I will be your God, you will be my people. Now, here's how you live. Here's the household rules for what it's like to live in a covenant relationship with me. So they distorted that, they pulled that out of context, and they distorted the idea of the Messiah, right? The Messiah would not conquer sin and evil through political domination and coercion. This Messiah... Isaiah says, would conquer sin and evil through suffering love. A Messiah who laid down his life for the good of others. And this good news was to be for all nations, even their oppressors. So they had the right end game, restoration of the kingdom, but the wrong lens, right? Political domination, violence, exclusion, and a sense of self-righteous superiority. Now, that's the distorted message. That led them then to distorted practice, right? Because what we believe eventually works its way out in how we live, right? So their deformed discipleship, this is Jesus' biggest critique of the Pharisees, right? He says to them, don't do what they do because why? They don't, look in the text, verse one and two, they don't practice what they preach. His biggest critique was that their practice didn't line up with their preaching. Their doing was incongruent with their being, right? Right? And, and what happened was they allowed their covenant relationship with Yahweh, which is supposed to center their reality, be co-opted for a cultural and religious and political project, right? Like cultural preservation was kind of their thing. Look at the critiques that Jesus levels against them in chapter 23. You tie up heavy loads. You, you take something that's meant to be a blessing and you pervert it into a burden, you love honor, and you love to be called teacher. You're a rabbi because you like the way that people talk about you and give you status. You get the best seats, right? You get all the deferential things. You get tickets to the box seats, tickets to the Pacers games, right? Like, you love all the trappings of the status, right? You devour widows' houses. You don't honor the vulnerable like God says in the law. You actually devour the vulnerable. You make long prayers for shows. You lock up the kingdom of heaven from people, you don't go in and you don't allow others who want to go in to go in because they've entrusted themselves to your wicked system. You, and, and you're fastidious about tithing, one of the verses says, right? And yet you neglect the weightier matters of the law. What are the weightier matters of the law? Justice, mercy, faith, or trust in Yahweh, right? Isn't that Micah 6, 8? What, is, what has been asked of you, O man, but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That's all there in the law. And he says, yet yeah, you've, you've missed it on the outside. You seem righteous, but inside you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. See, this is the paradox of the Pharisees. They studied the law. They taught the law. They claimed to love the Torah. But in reality, they had a deformed practice of it. They were hypocritical. They were self-righteous. They were arrogant. They were selective in what rules they followed and what rules they gave themselves grace around, right? They were neurotic. They were external instead of internal. They were judgmental, right? They created this system where they elevated helpful things into essential things. And then that framework is how they then evaluated who was righteous and who was not. The point that Jesus is making is we've got to be so careful in our preaching of the good news that we don't engage in doing at the expense of being. That's, that's his primary critique, right? There's a religious activity, a zeal that's disconnected from the reality of a deep life with God that then works itself out into a love of neighbor. 
And then, of course, he calls that out. He says that is, that is going to create every time a destructive culture of hell, right? This is probably not one they taught you uh, on the flannel board when you were a kid growing up in church, but you travel over land and sea to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as fit for hell as you are. Another translation says you make them twice the sons of hell that you yourself are. The Pharisees' zeal to convert others paradoxically ends up damaging and destroying them. Wow. There's a kind of religious activity in the name of God that sees itself sincerely as helping others when it's actually enslaving and damaging them. That's terrifying. Remember that Jesus called the Pharisees children of the devil? Right? What he meant by that was that he called them blind guides. He says, you're self-deceived. It's not that the Pharisees were intentionally, I, I, I believe, they sincerely thought they were doing the right thing in the name of God. The problem is they were deceiving themselves more than they were deceiving anybody else. And that's almost more dangerous. When you think you're doing the right thing, you're a blind God. You have this blind spot, right? And you're judging everyone else while not looking inside with a sort of self-examination and self-critique and self-reflection. And he says, when you do that, you're in danger of inadvertently, but nonetheless still doing it, serving demonic purposes, serving the demonic purposes of deception and division and exclusion of the people that God loves and the world that God longs to restore. You bring curse and not blessing. And now, not only that, you're doing that, now you're reproducing that. You have, you have heirs. You're, you're essentially producing spiritual offspring. And you know how it is, right? Like the children always take the things from their parents and they do it in excess, right? The second generation of any movement, right? Like, you know, I, I went to a seminary where like everybody was talking about John Calvin, you know, whatever. And it's like this whole thing of Calvinism. Um, man, like Calvinists are so much worse than John Calvin ever was, <laughs> Right? Like, it's just like, you're like, I don't think John Calvin would even recognize, whatever. This isn't about John Calvin. My point is, the children take things in excess, and they take it to the extremes. You're produ- reproducing offspring who will make it even worse. You're, you're, you're creating this evangelistic culture of hell. The next slide here is a picture of this word hell is the word Gehenna. And it was an actual physical place. It was a valley outside Jerusalem where people who engaged in the Old Testament in idolatry and the sacrifice of their children as they were tempted by the pagan nations around them, um, Josiah, the king who brought kind of a big renewal movement to the church, he curses this and it becomes essentially like this garbage heap outside the city where they throw trash and things like that. And, and literally it would just burn. Next slide. It would burn all the time. Think of it just like a fire that was always burning. So Jesus says hell And he uses that analogy. He's literally talking about a physical place that they could see the smoke rising from. They could smell the refuse burning. So this is Jesus says, this is your evangelism. (laughs) This is what I think about your evangelism. You're taking something that was meant to be beautiful and life-giving and you've perverted it and it's destroying people. It's a dumpster fire. Dale Bruner, one scholar, my favorite scholar on this commentary, on this passage, says, Jesus' second woe should guard the church against confusing missionary zeal with divine truth. This woe is valuable to the church because she is always tempted to look at the missionary outreach and church growth of certain groups and to think that these can only be explained by God's blessing and the group's dedication. But falsehood shares with truth a remarkable missionary zeal. Guilt is as motivating as gratitude. The false spirits are sometimes more active than the Holy Spirit. A man or woman can be so consumed with God's mission in the world, that he or she simply creates fellow fanatics. Jesus' woe should drive disciples to their knees to pray for a purification of their zeal, for the discernment that refuses to confuse activity or size with authenticity or truth. I mean, I think about like our parents' generation, and and again, there's a lot to appreciate. But I think about all the obsession with church growth and this assumption that bigger, better, faster, stronger equals hashtag blessed. If I make more money, I must be blessed by God. If my church grows, I must be blessed by God. If my business grows, I must be. Like, that's the mentality. And he says, don't confuse that with truth and with true conversion. You could be reproducing in mass sons of hell, serving demonic purposes. And that's why Jesus said in Matthew 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? 
Didn't we, to the Pharisees, didn't we try to protect our ethnic and cultural identity? Didn't we, didn't we work hard to try to restore the kingdom and be faithful to the Torah so that you would come back and drive out all of our enemies? It says, then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Now, these are the dynamics that were at play with the Pharisees. Deformed, uh, distorted gospel, deformed practice, destructive culture. And I wonder, like, how, for how many of us, uh, for some of us, how much of our hesitancy to preach the gospel is due to these kind of toxic Pharisee-like dynamics in the American church. Like, we've just seen these things at work, we've seen these things at play, and we don't want to have anything to do with it. And so we're just like, let me keep my head down and be faithful and just be a good person <laughs> and try not to do anything that would be overly harmful to anybody else. I don't want to perpetuate that. Because we have these distorted gospels, right? Like, we need to name these things. And we've done this, and I... At first service, I kind of went wild and went back over this. I don't have time to do this here. I'm sorry. First service, they always get the longer version of me. Um, you guys are like, we get the longer version. No, they get their extended track, uh, bonus track version of me. But we, last year, I preached a sermon called, uh, What is the Gospel? Last August from Mark chapter 1. I want to encourage you, if you, didn't li- if you haven't heard that sermon, go back. Because we name these and do a deeper dive in these. But we also, in the American church, need to recognize that we've been raised up with distorted gospels, right? Like, not always false gospels, but again, 90% true could be 10% false and super harmful, right? And so we need to name these. And what I see in this, on this right here is five of the most dangerous ones. Some of the ones that are distortions of the gospel that I'm constantly talking to people here. Like, my generational... Uh, project as the pastor of this church. If I leave and you guys get one thing from me, I, I know I'm not super talented at a lot of things. I don't do a lot of things well. I'm an average whatever pastor. But if you get one thing from me, it is going to be we recover the true gospel. And we preach the gospel and we live out the whole gospel for the whole church, for the whole world. Right? That is my generational project. So you can serve, you can serve me by uh, internalizing this reality and resisting some of these distorted gospels, right? And, and we could go through these, and again, the individual salvation gospel, again, I, it, it's partially true, right? God loves you. You're a sinner deserving death and hell. Jesus died in your place for your sins, took your punishment. If you repent and believe, your sins can be forgiven, and you'll go to heaven when you die. Everybody's like, what's the problem with that? There's nothing wrong with that. That's all true, but there's another story in which that makes sense that's a larger story that gives meaning to those propositional truths, to those statements. And so it's incomplete. The gospel is more than a transaction. It's more than what Dallas Willard called a barcode that we scan so that we can have merit transferred into our account and go to heaven when we die, right? It's about God restoring and transforming all of creation, right? We'll talk about that in a sec. It's, it's not just about getting you into heaven. It's about getting heaven into you. It's about a living relationship and trust in Jesus. To believe is not just to believe right doctrine about him, although you have to do that, but it's to be in a living relationship and communion with Jesus himself. And this tends to reduce the horizons of Christianity and the gospel to just like individual souls being saved. And again, I'm for individual souls. I hope that you here believe in Jesus, turn from your sin and turn to Jesus and receive him as Lord and and King and Savior. But what what about all of the social and cultural dimensions of the gospel, right? And that's why when when we we preach about Jesus being King and, and being Lord of creation, Lord of life, like that includes, and we'll talk regularly here about the, the reign and the rule of Jesus is preaching the gospel. We'll talk about reconciliation with God and with other people. We'll talk about justice and freedom for the oppressed. We'll talk about peace between peoples. We'll talk about creation care. And people go, why aren't you preaching the gospel? And I'm like, we are preaching the gospel. That is part of the gospel. All of it is part of the Christ-centered, world-affirming, restorative kingdom project that Jesus came to bring. And so that is one example of that. We could talk about the prosperity gospel and not just the hard prosperity. Like I know some people are like, you know, name it and claim it. I'm not even talking about that. I'm just talking about there's a soft version of that that I see in our own community, right? Where we are, uh, there's like this upwardly mobile, up and to the right, success, beautiful people living beautiful lives on Instagram, thing that's being sold to us, uh, consumerism, you know, like it's, it's problematic and we need to be aware of that. Leslie Newbegin, a missionary a long time into India, when he came back to the West, he said, man, we could talk about secularism and there's a lot to say there. He's like, but the biggest threat to Western Christianity that I see is economic, it's capitalism. 
Now, again, whatever, I'm not saying capitalism is all bad, but I'm just saying it, it, there's an, I call it the idol of the marketplace. And what that does to train our imagination about what it means to be disciples of Jesus, right? We've got to be aware of that sort of prosperity that says up and to the right is the way of Jesus, right? Um, the, the social gospel we've talked about, right, which is basically just political activism, right? That Jesus came to liberate and usher in this progressive socialist vision of equity, authenticity, and freedom, right? Like that, that is being sold to us in the church. The nationalistic gospel, I mean, holy cow. I wish, I don't even have time. We've talked about this a lot, but like this week, a person that I deeply respect, an evangelical leader I've respected my whole adult life said something like this. The, the nationalistic gospel is basically that America is God's chosen nation, right? That the constitution and the founding documents are a divine, right? And the problem with America is we've been corrupted by foreigners and progressives and the gospel is some version of patriotism and reclaiming our country for God. That's basically nationalism. One of my, a man I deeply respect said this week, they call me a Christian nationalist as if we are supposed to be running from that. I'm not about to run from that. I embrace it. This is, the, this is a person training tons and tons of pastors for the American church. And, and one of our politicians this week said, pastors and priests, is a Christian, need to be talking about the Constitution from the pulpit as much as from the Bible. Another one said, we need to be the party of nationalism. I'm a Christian, and I say it proudly. We should be Christian nationalists. So we're dealing with this in the church. Somebody came to me this morning after the first service, like, I've never heard that in church. God bless you, man, because there is a generation of pastors being trained in this, and this is coming. It is a reality in many places. Probably not broader pool, uh, but definitely, our, you know, our families and our churches around the city. Um, the angry God. We could go on and on. My point is, there are distortions in the gospel that lead to all kinds of deformed uh, discipleship and destructive culture, and that's why we experience so much pain, right? We, we have hyper-individualism and racism and classism and political idolatry and colonialism and abuse and legalism and all the stuff that gets attached to the church. It's no wonder that our friends don't want to have anything to do with Jesus. Now, uh, my, one of my favorite comments on this, my seminary professor and friend Russell Moore said this, we now see young evangelicals walking away from evangelicalism, not because they do not believe what the church teaches, but because they believe the church itself does not believe what the church teaches. The presenting issue in this secularization is not scientism and hedonism, but disillusionment and cynicism. Next chart, I've showed this before. This is what's happening culturally. That one that's rocketing up into the right is nuns, people who used to be in the church who don't want anything to do with Christianity, don't want to identify as Christian anymore. The one falling precipitously there is the evangelical church. Now, I say all this because this is what we have to acknowledge. We have to name this. We have to deal with this. If we're going to be preaching the gospel, we have to be aware that this is what our friends and coworkers and neighbors think about Christianity's attempts to convert the world. And so, Here's what I want to say to you. Despite the abuses and despite the distortions, Jesus still invites us to preach the gospel. So let's get positive for a second. Like our culture, like Jesus imagines a world. Turn over to Matthew 4. We'll end here. Matthew chapter 4. Um, actually, I left my Bible down here. Matthew chapter 4. Against the backdrop of the Roman Empire, Jesus shows up to preach his first sermon. And he talks about a culture of darkness and he's quoting Isaiah there. And basically, he's imagining a world where there are all kinds of gospels being preached, right? Like, you don't have a choice whether or not you're going to preach a gospel. The question is, what gospel are you preaching? You realize every single day on Instagram, social media, in your workplace, you are being bombarded with gospel messages about good news, about what it means to be human and flourish in the world, right? I mean, I could give you tons of these. There's the gospel of moral relativism, you do you. There's the gospel of scientism. Science is everything. I'm not anti-science, but science is everything and will solve all of our problems. There's the gospel of consumerism. You are what you buy. There's the Silicon Valley digital capitalistic gospel, right? Like, let's engineer our lives technologically and we'll, 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 all work out, we'll all be okay. It's not working out so great for us. There's the gospel of postmodern gender theory, the gospel of political progressivism or libertarianism or convert, conservatism. My point is, everybody's preaching gospel. Right? The question is, what gospel will we preach? What gospel will we believe and live out in the world? We're going to preach a gospel with our lives. Even if you never open your mouth and say, I'm sharing good news with you, you believe something about what it means to be human and to flourish in the world. The question is, does it lead to life? Does it lead to joy? Does it lead to love? Does it lead to the kingdom of God or not? Jesus said this, and, and this is so convicting to me, because I, I don't 
always feel this way. Luke 4, he says, I must proclaim the good news about the kingdom of God. Not I reluctantly, not sometimes when I feel like it, I must. This is why I came. Matthew 28 tells the disciples, go out into all the world and preach the gospel. We know that verse, right? Then Acts 1 he tells the disciples again, you'll receive power. You're gonna need power to do this, right? Because it's gonna be easy to shrink back and not share, not proclaim the good news of Jesus or just live a good life, but never talk about Jesus to your friends and neighbors. He says, I'm gonna give you power from the Holy Spirit and you'll bear witness to me. That's what it means to be uh, preaching the gospel, bear witness to the reality of Jesus. And then we find at the end of Acts 28, which kind of bridges this into this sermon, Paul ends, most people believe his life is gonna be over here in the next couple of years. He ends his ministry, his public ministry, Acts 28, 30, He stayed two whole years in his own rented house. After all the abuse, after all the oppression he's experienced, after all that we've just talked about the last few weeks, he welcomed all who visited him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching the things concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with full boldness and without hindrance. Why did he do that? Because Jesus did it? Because Jesus told his disciples to do it? And Paul was trying to be like Jesus. What does it mean to preach the gospel? This will be our definition for the series. It just means announcing the good news of Jesus and his kingdom in life. That's what we want to talk about. That's what I was trying to talk about today. In life, word, and deed. Life, word, and works. How did Jesus do evangelism with his disciples? Matthew chapter 4. If you have time this week, go and read this. It's a beautiful passage. It's Jesus' first uh, real sermon. Verse 17. From then on, Jesus began to preach. Repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Verse 19, follow me, he told them, and I will make you fish for people. That's code for essentially for evangelism. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And then he went on all over Galilee, verse 23, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. That's what Jesus' vision for, what it meant to be and to proclaim the good news. So how did Jesus do evangelism with his disciples? Here's what I want you to take away from today's sermon. Being gospel people before doing gospel work. Being gospel people, the Pharisees did, but it was disconnected from being with Jesus. Jesus calls his followers to follow me, become gospel people. And out of the overflow of your transformation in your life with God, you will be and share the good news in word and deed. Let me just contrast, just do these contrasts. So I know some of you have open loops in your brain that need to be closed um, from the Pharisees. Let me just juxtapose the Pharisees' way of doing evangelism with Jesus. The Pharisees distorted the gospel. Jesus brings a beautiful gospel, the true gospel. What does he say? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus' gospel was the kingdom of God. The reign and the rule of God. And again, go back to that sermon from last year. It starts in Genesis, goes to Revelation. It's a story about a king bringing a kingdom. God creates us for a kingdom. We ruin it by trying to govern ourselves. Jesus comes to restore that in a way that nobody expected. Born into a poor family, surprised everybody because he lived his life as a homeless man. His ministry is not in Athens or Greece or Rome. It's in the backwoods regions of Galilee. He wages war on evil, not by military power, but through self-sacrificing agape love. That's the kingdom of God. That's the message. The reign and the rule of God is here in the person of Jesus. The gospel is not just a bunch of propositional statements. It's a person. We follow him. We believe in him. We trust in him. You guys with me? Yeah. And he says, repent and believe. Right? Repent means rethink everything. Don't just believe some stuff and then go on living your life another way. Rethink everything. Rethink your economics. Rethink your politics. Rethink your, mar- you know, your, your relationships. Rethink your singleness. Rethink your education. Rethink where you live. Rethink everything in light of me and then trust me. That's what believe means, right? It doesn't mean intellectual ascent. It means trust in me daily. Walk with me. Be with me. Become like me. Do what I did. That's the gospel. I'm going to put this on the screen because I want us to not just memorize this. I don't care if you can regurgitate this. I want you to live this, but I want you to internalize this message of the gospel. This is how we define this at Soma. Two two slides over, Isaiah. Um, This is how we define the gospel. The good news that God himself has come to rescue us from sin and to renew 
the world, which includes individuals being saved. Okay, hear me. I'm not hearing, I'm not saying. But it's rescuing the world and renewing the world through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and to establish his kingdom through his people in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the scope of what Jesus is doing with his kingdom. And that's important because that then defines how we practice the way of Jesus. If we get the gospel wrong, everything downstream is going to be wrong. Dallas Willard said this, we must do nothing less than engage in a radical rethinking of the Christian concept of salvation. He's not saying rethink orthodoxy, rethink the way we've been thinking about the gospel and talking about the gospel generationally. He's recently passed away, but he was talking to a previous generation. What you present as the gospel will determine what you present as discipleship. And I think the discipleship gap is why people are leaving the church in droves because they don't see it lived out. It's a Pharisee situation. You preach this, and yet your, your, your gatherings look like anything I could see anywhere sociologically. They look sociologically like the homogeneous unit principle, if you're familiar with missions. So beautiful gospel leading to transformed way, a transformed way of life. The Pharisees deformed discipleship. Jesus' disciples transformed way of life. Follow me, and I'm going to change everything about you, Jesus says. That was his first priority in evangelism, was creating that community of transformation. To be a disciple is to be a learner, to be an apprentice, to be a person who's learning to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do what Jesus would do if he were you, forming you and forming us into a people of love. That kind of deep transformation and formation happened when he called his disciples to him. I love the stories of the evangelism and how bad they, how epically they fail. I told you I'm bad at this. Uh, how epically the disciples fail. Do you remember when they went to the Samaritans, their enemies, uh, in, in Luke? And Jesus is like, hey, let's go evangelize these Samaritans. And you would think they'd be excited. Like, we got Jesus, right? We got LeBron, the LeBron James of evangelism. There's going to be a massive, you know, harvest here. And what do they say to Jesus? Hey, do you want us to call down fire on the Samaritans? No, we're not doing that, right? That's the way that you would have thought. But let me teach you a different way. Uh, they go out in Luke chapter 10, and he sends them out, and they have all this spiritual power. And they come back to Jesus after, and they're like, man, even the demons submitted to us. And, and they, they expect Jesus to be excited. And Jesus is like, dude, you're rejoicing in the wrong things. You're rejoicing in power, not the people that I sent you to love. You got it all wrong. And so there's this process of unlearning the way of religion, unlearning the way of Rome, and learning Jesus' way in Jesus' family. That's what we're doing in the church. Everybody with me? That's what we're doing in the church. We're learning righteousness, which is public, a public way of life. We're learning justice. We're learning peacemaking. We're learning humility. We're learning kindness. We're learning forgiveness. We're learning enemy love. We're learning non-retaliation. We're learning suffering. And that's the way that the church grows, being gospel people, and then offering our transformed and transforming presence to the world. That is the kind of culture that we want to create here at Soma, and that's where we'll end. Leslie Newbegin, again, the missionary to India, said, the most important contribution which the church can make to a new social order is to be itself a new social order. And when Jesus then went out with his disciples, and they taught, and they preached, and they healed people, we see there not the destructive culture of hell but we see the healing culture of heaven come to earth. That's what we want. That's what we long for. Instead of children of hell, Jesus calls his disciples beloved sons and daughters of God who bring the very presence and power of God by the Holy Spirit into the world, into this earth. It's not a gospel that just got them to heaven when they died. It's a gospel that had everything to do with how they lived on this earth. One more picture and we'll close. I love this image. This is a healing culture. The church should be this place, an oasis, in a desert of violence, chaos, idolatry, injustice happening all around us. We are becoming a people of love. And if we will maintain our focus on following Jesus and becoming this kind of people, we will not have to browbeat our friends and neighbors to believe in Jesus. We will not have to go out and do marketing. We will not have to have fancy buildings. We will not have to have great technology. People will come in droves because these other gospels that are not true gospels will ultimately fail them. And they will come looking thirsty people and hungry people for the waters and the bread of life. And we will have something 
authentic to offer them. We're not going to offer them dust and sand. We're going to offer them real bread and real water, the, the life of Jesus. And so as we close and we go to communion, that is kind of a, just an invitation for us, and we'll do this each week with our series, is we want to invite us to practice what we're talking about here. And this first practice on being before doing is just simply a, a space to uh, reflect on your own gospel story, your own personal narrative of conversion. How did you come to know Jesus? Right? And this is the thing that always gets me. It's like, if I don't share the gospel, who's going to? I would not be here as a disciple of Jesus, even as flawed as it was and as much abuse and corruption as it was. If somebody didn't have the courage to share the good news of Jesus with me, I would not be a Christian. And so we want to take some time just to reflect on our own gospel story, to reflect on what kind of uh, gospel were we, were we believing? How did we come to know Jesus? What did we learn in our families of origin and our churches growing up about evangelism that may be influencing why we're having so much anxiety in this conversation, or maybe why we're a little bit too zealous uh, in this conversation in ways that we shouldn't be, right? We want to reflect on that together and share those stories with each other. Even if your story is, hey, man, I'm not a disciple. Great. Let's talk about that. We want to be an open space for people to come and say, hey, I'm not sure that I'm there. And we want to just pay attention to, I want to encourage you, pay attention to the emotions, the desires, and the thoughts that rise to the surface as you do this work, because it will create some trauma. It will create uh, some memories that may not be great. And we need to pay attention to those and say, how are those guiding and shaping the way that I think about this conversation, how it show up in terms of preaching the gospel? Let me pray for us, and then we'll go to communion, and we'll send you out here. Father, we thank you for uh, this encouragement from Jesus to follow him, to follow you, Jesus, as your disciples, to be authentic disciples, just leaning so hard into your grace and your mercy and your kingdom message that all are invited because of the life that you live, the death that you died, the resurrection, your ascension, your, your reign and your rule, God. We are invited to repent, to turn away from trusting in our own righteousness and to really just trust in you and become your kingdom disciples. And then out of that transformation, to invite others to experience that life. So God, would you convict us? Would you challenge us? Would you teach us what it looks like to do that faithfully in this cultural moment? God, we desperately need your presence and power. We ask for it, and now we come to celebrate it in your body and blood. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.